Hello, you wonderful geeks. Good evening and welcome to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with yet another hour of geeky science, fun, facts, frivolity and stuff. And right out the bat, I really do need to say it is just me. And I need to apologise, not just to you, but once again to the long, long suffering Alice. You see, what happened was I did have the segment of my conversation with Alice that I wanted to use this week, all edited. It was brilliant. I'd leveled it. I'd done all the posts on it. It was honestly a thing of audio beauty. And then I lost it. I don't know what I've done. It's happened before, and I don't know what I did then either. Now, I can do one of two things here. I can re-edit the segment, or I can find the data that I've lost. It's, it's recoverable somewhere. What I don't have is time to do either of those things before I need to get this stuff uploaded and online. So, with regret, it is just me this week, and um, I promise I will have even more of not me next week. How's that? Okay, so, news from the comics world. This isn't breaking. This actually broke. Wait, it's been breaking for a while. This is not a thing that people were not aware of, but it finally came to a head last week. You may have heard me mention the comic Immortal Hulk, by Al Ewing, which is a fantastic piece of work. But there's been a bit of an issue. Al Ewing is a great guy. I've never met him, but I follow him on Twitter and uh, he seems like a nice bloke. He's also an extraordinarily talented writer. Providing art on The Immortal Hulk has been a guy called Joe Bennett, who Marvel has now announced will not be working for Marvel again. A Marvel spokesperson has told Newsarama links in the show notes, that Bennett will not be working on any future Marvel projects. They sacked him, in effect. Now, why? Why have they sacked him? Well, the guy's been problematic for a while. I know Alice hates the P word, but to be honest, I, it's it's the word. Uh, I suppose you could use the O word. You could say he's, he's been objectionable for a while. Now, Marvel hasn't said why they've come to this decision. Al Ewing has said uh, recently, uh, in a statement on September the 2nd, that he will not work with Bennett again. Uh, and Ewing gives the the reason as um, reprehensible, I think that's a direct quote, artwork that Bennett has done in various places. Ewing actually refers to a, a cartoon, a political cartoon from 2017, which caricatures some people as rats. It's clear what he's, you know, th this is targeted at a group. Uh, it's fairly clear in the cartoon. I am surprised it's taken this long frankly. Bennett's made homophobic statements, uh, transphobic comments, and you know, before anybody asks me, he's entitled to his view. Of course he is. People are entitled to be objectionable and wrong. It's fine. If we fired everybody who had views I don't agree with, nobody would be in work. I think what may have been the final straw for Marvel, although even saying this, I'm surprised they it took them this long to act. In the artwork for Immortal Hulk, 43. Bennett drew a panel which I think is clearly anti-Semitic. Now, given, first of all, just basic decency, racism is not acceptable, anti-Semitism is a kind of racism and it's not acceptable. But also, given the number of Jewish people who work at Marvel, I mean, Marvel exists because of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, two proud New York Jews. 
And yet this is not the first time an artist has done this. I'm not sharing the anti-Semitic image. Uh, it's available on Google if you really want to despoil your eyeballs. It is pretty clearly anti-Semitic and it's clearly deliberate. And it's not the first time this has happened. Um, you may remember back in 2016, X-Men Gold issue one had a problem uh, with an artist doing something pretty similar here, actually. And what I'm what I what I don't understand, I don't understand, first of all, how the image got past editorial. Somebody was not paying attention. Now, I will grant you that I don't think anyone in Marvel editorial is expecting to have to look for racist and anti-Semitic imagery because they shouldn't have to. It shouldn't be there. Artists shouldn't be drawing it. Writers shouldn't be writing it. But Marvel's got form. So keep an eye on this. Now, Immortal Hulk 43 came out a few months ago now. So it does surprise me that it's taken Marvel this long to react because you know, criticism of this and people calling this out isn't recent. It's been going on for some time. And even if Marvel didn't take action, I'm utterly astonished that Disney didn't. When you consider how quickly Disney moved to um, remove James Gunn from Guardians of the Galaxy, although they reinstated him, when they let Gina Carano go from The Mandalorian because of her views, well, because of views that she expressed, on her own social media. This wasn't even in this guy's social media. This was in the work. Well done, Marvel, for getting rid of this guy. Badly done. Badly, badly done for taking this lot this long. Things like this should not be tolerated, and he should have been fired. Not because he expressed objectionable views, although you have to look at people who express views that you find objectionable, either as a person or as a company, and think, well, do I really want to work with that person? Al Ewing, for example, has clearly decided that no, he doesn't. And Marvel shouldn't just be thinking along those lines, though. Marvel should have been thinking, hang on, we're paying this guy, and he's put this objectionable, anti-Semitic nonsense into the work. He put them on the page that Marvel paid him to draw. I would see that as his employer as an act of gross misconduct. And I would fire you for gross misconduct from my company instantly. Never had to do it, but I am an employer and I absolutely would. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm bothered by this. I'm bothered that it was allowed to happen in the first place. So, you know, do better, Marvel, and everybody else. Do better. Ah, there you go. Always nice to get the boring preachy part out of the way at the beginning, isn't it? On to happier things now. Still comics adjacent. Have you seen the Hawkeye trailer yet? The Hawkeye TV series that's coming to Disney+. Plus. I know I keep plugging Disney+. Plus. I promise you they're not paying me. I don't like Disney as a company very much. But look at the nice things they give us. Um, it looks amazing, the Hawkeye trailer. Now, I'll be honest with you. I quite like Jeremy Renner as Clint Barton, but equally, I can take or leave him. I'm not that big of a MCU Hawkeye fan. In terms of the comics, though, I adore Kate Bishop as a character. I think she is absolutely brilliant. Her solo run as uh, Hawkeye Kate Bishop and her run in the recent West Coast Avengers just unutterably wonderful. I adored it. I was speaking to a customer yesterday who did not, and, uh, you know, 
we, we can all differ on these things. But hey, it's my show. So I adore Kate Bishop. And I think from what I've seen in the trailer so far, I think that we are going to get a pretty comics accurate Kate Bishop. And I think the relationship between Kate and Clint, which, again, I've always enjoyed in the comics, I think we're going to get that too. So hurrah! And that's all I'm saying. Links to, uh, well, actually not links. I've actually embedded the trailer in the show notes. So if you haven't seen it, go and take a look. Uh, if you've got Disney Plus, look forward to it. It's out in November. And if you haven't got Disney Plus, I'm going to suggest you make a friend with somebody who has and go and watch it around their house. Okay, now moving on to something I never thought I'd ever say. Have you been to Superdrug lately? No? No, me neither. I'm not a big shopper in places like that. I also don't buy a lot of makeup, at least not recently. I may have rocked a little bit of eyeliner in the in the 80s, early 90s when I was like properly in my goth thing. Uh, still a goth, really at heart, but I don't look like one so much anymore. Uh, anyway, Superdrug. I can't believe I'm saying this. Superdrug had launched a range of Batman branded makeup. It's not all Batman branded. There's a little bit of Harley Quinn branded makeup in there, which honestly makes a little bit more sense to my aging and vaguely misogynistic brain. And so it's the Bat logo stuff that I'm going to concentrate on. Links in the show notes to the Superdrug website where you can go and have a look. And hey, if the fancy takes you, purchase some of this stuff. Uh, again, this is not a paid endorsement. I don't wear makeup. I don't know if it's any good as makeup. And I am not being paid by Superdrug. What I am doing is thinking, do you know what? This wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. It certainly wouldn't have happened when I was a kid. Because if you're putting the brand on something that is targeted at young women, which this brand of makeup clearly is, then you are acknowledging that your target market likes that brand. So what Superdrug is saying is we think there are a lot of young women out there who really dig Batman. And so we're going to put the Bat logo on mascara and foundation and eyeshadow and eyeliner and all of these things that we are clearly targeting at women. I know guys wear makeup. I know guys wear eyeliner. And yeah, if I was still in my eyeliner days, I would probably be picking up Batman eyeliner if it was available. But that's not the principal market here. The principal target market appears to be young women. So Superdrug is saying, we think young women like Batman. I'll say it again. We think young women like Batman. That is a huge shift because for years, decades, since there's, since this has been a thing, marketing departments have been very clear in their view that superheroes are something that only really appeals to boys. And things have been marketed accordingly. You may remember a few years ago um, when one of the Avengers movies came out. I can't remember which one it was, but there was a very cool sequence in which... Black Widow rides a motorcycle out the bottom of a Quinjet and rides through the traffic in, I can't remember which city, and retrieves Captain America's shield and makes a comment about how I'm always having to pick up after the boys. And it was utterly badass. It was a brilliant sequence. But when the toy version of that came out, it wasn't Black Widow riding the bike. It was Captain America. Because the marketing people at the toy company felt that boys were the target market for this toy, and boys wouldn't want to play with the toy if it featured a girl. Now, I don't think that's true. I know well enough myself that had I seen that film as a kid and I'd watched that sequence and enjoyed it, and then somebody had bought me the toy and it had been the wrong character on the bike, it would have annoyed the heck out of me. And certainly, 
I think a lot of little girls will have been very disappointed that Black Widow was not on that motorbike on the toy that they possibly asked for. And all because the prejudice in marketing departments has been girls don't do superheroes. Now, it's never been true. I know any number of women who were very much into superheroes when they were kids. I've taught many young women who were still kids and very much into superheroes. And I've been hanging around comic stores for 30 years. God, more than 30 years now. And there have always been girls. They weren't always made to feel welcome, but they were always there. And actually, the fact that in the 80s and early 90s, comic stores could be so hostile to young women, and yet they still went there to get their comics, suggests how into the superheroes they really were. So I'm really pleased about this. Thank you, Superdrug. I hope it's a massive, massive success for you. And who knows, I might even start wearing mascara again. And since we're talking about comics news that makes me happy, I am very happy to report that Grendel has been picked up by Netflix for an eight issue. Sorry, eight episode, I guess, series. Now, if you don't know Grendel, he's not that big of a, a, a well-known character. Uh, he's sort of a Batman ripoff, uh, but with a bit of a twist. Uh, created by uh, cartoonist Matt Wagner, uh, published by Dark Horse in the 80s and 90s. Grendel is about a guy called Hunter Rose. He is a gifted fencer and assassin and wanting to get vengeance for the death of a loved one. He goes to war with the criminal underground and then decides, now, do you know what? Why beat them when you can join them? And he becomes kind of a criminal kingpin figure. Now, in the comics, the series goes on and is projected into the future where Grendel, Grendelism has become a religion. Uh, but this series is not going to look at that. This is focusing on Hunter Rose himself. And um, it looks really quite cool. They've cast a guy called uh, Abu Bakr Ali uh, as Hunter Rose. Now, he is a an, an Arabic Muslim male actor, and apparently this makes him the first such person to take a series lead in a comic book adaptation. Uh, may he not be the last. Someone's got to be first, I guess. The series is written by Andrew Dabb uh, and executive produced by, by Andrew Dabb, uh, who is an alumni of Resident Evil and Supernatural. So he's got chops in genre telly, and it's also got quite a cool cast. Uh, Jamie Ray Newman, who was in The Time Traveller's Wife. Julian Black Antelope from The Flash. Emma Ho from Star Trek Strange New World, which I haven't seen, but I have seen her in The Expanse, and she's brilliant in that. Uh, Eric Palladino, who's in Watchmen. Brittany Allen, uh, who is in What Keeps You Arrive. Uh, Andy Mientus, who, who is in The Flash, amongst other things. So, yeah, very, very excited. And um, this is... A slew of things from Dark Horse that are going to um, Netflix. They've had the Umbrella Academy. That's a Dark Horse comic. They're working on um, what they're calling Samurai Rabbit, the Usagi Chronicles. Why they can't just call it Usagi Gajimbo, I do not know. But it's based on Stan Sakai's Usagi Gajimbo uh, long-running series of comics, which I can't recommend to you hardly enough. So, yeah, pretty cool. I'm not going to go into detail about it. Uh, I'm going to link you to the deadline article in the show notes uh, where I'm getting all of this information from, basically. So, um, yeah, I, I'm cautiously optimistic for this. Uh, Netflix has done a really good job with comic book adaptations in the past. I point you at everything they did for Marvel, apart possibly from Iron Fist and definitely Defenders um, and you know, Umbrella Academy, Titans, all of that stuff. So, yeah, cautiously optimistic. And of course... 
Uh, we do still have Grendel comics, so you could check out the comics too. And if all of that positivity was not enough, I've got some more unusual positivity for you, because there's something else in comics this week that is making me ridiculously happy. If you have been following any of the shows I've done for any amount of time at all, you must surely know how I feel about Batgirl. It's a passion and a love that goes back to childhood with me. Um, watching Linda Craig on the Batman Adam West Burt Ward show when I was ooh, five or six. She was always my favourite character, more so than Batman, even more so than Robin, who I desperately wanted to be. Clearly, I didn't want to be Batgirl because little boys in the 70s didn't want to be girls. But actually, that's not true. But it was true of me. Um, but, oh, so many. I've talked about the Robins before and how much I love them and the various iterations of Robin there have been. There have been many Batgirls also. Um, obviously, the original is still the best. Barbara Gordon will always be my Batgirl. And I love that they've kept open the option in the comics, in the current continuity, to let her be Bat Batgirl whenever she wants to be. But they've also brought back the, the, the disabled representation that Barbara Gordon gave for so long. Best of both worlds. Brilliant, brilliant idea. I love it. I know some people are upset that they've put Barbara Gordon back in her chair. Um, and I know some disabled activists are annoyed by this as well. Um, I hear what they say. I don't agree with them. Um, easy for me to say, but I don't. Anyway, there have been several other Batgirls. Back before they fixed Barbara Gordon's spinal injury to let her be Batgirl again, there was a vacancy. There was a gap. Now, during a storyline called No Man's Land, in which the, the idea was that Gotham had been destroyed by a massive earthquake and it had effectively been sealed off by the federal government and made not part of America anymore because they didn't want to fix it. It's too expensive. They, they, the government had just said, look, you can't live in Gotham anymore. It's not safe. If you don't want to leave, that's fine. We won't force you, but we're not helping you. And it's no longer part of the United States. It's too far gone. We can't do anything with it. Leave and you can have a new life somewhere else. Now, obviously, because Gothamites are Gothamites, most of them didn't. And the no man's land that Gotham had become became a bit of a hellhole run by gangs, uh, of which one was the Gotham City Police Department, who managed to keep order and calm and safety in a very small area of the city. Bruce Wayne left Gotham. Not because he was running away, but because Bruce decided that the best way he could save Gotham at that moment was not on the streets as Batman, but in the halls of Congress as Bruce Wayne, using his money and his power and his companies to lobby the American government to get Gotham back, which eventually he succeeded in doing. But that meant for a while there was no Batman in Gotham City at a time when many would have argued it needed a Batman more than ever. Into that void stepped Cassandra Cain. Now, Cassie is one of my favourite characters in the DCU. She is the daughter of an assassin. She was raised as an assassin. When she was first, she was mute and illiterate. She could not read or write. She could not speak. But what she could do was read movement, which is 
how she became such a formidable fighter. Now, seeing the, seeing the gap, seeing that Gotham needed a hero, she cobbled together her own Batgirl suit and set out to protect people. That's Cassie. She was Batgirl for quite a while. She's what I get. I loved her as Batgirl. Much as I always miss Barbara when she's not Batgirl. Honestly, the other Batgirls that there have been, I've also enjoyed. So it's it's a bit like really loving ch- chocolate milkshake. But sometimes you have a strawberry milkshake and you really love that too, even though you kind of, in the back of your mind, kind of think, I kind of wish I'd had a chocolate milkshake. It's that kind of thing. It's like when things are all just brilliant and there's so many good things, you can't decide which one to pick. So that's Cassie. She is a very focused, very determined young woman, uh, a great character. They've they've softened her a little bit now. She talks a bit. Uh, and but a lot of the time she's gone under the name Orphan. But... It looks like they're putting her back with the ears, and I'm very pleased about that. The other Batgirl that's relevant here is Stephanie Brown. Now, I've definitely talked about Stephanie before, because under the name Spoiler, she met Tim Drake, who was Robin, and is, again, Robin. They were an item for quite a long time, until very recently. And because she wasn't created for the Bat family, or she didn't become a superhero for the Bat family, she was doing that on her own anyway. But because of her relationship with Tim, she kind of was absorbed into and adopted into the Bat family. And because of that, when Barbara Gordon decided that there needed to be a Batgirl, she offered Stephanie the job. Now, I want to be clear, because this is something I like about the women in the Bat family. I've said this before as well. Barbara Gordon did not ask permission from Batman when she set herself out to be Batgirl. She did it on her own. Cassie Kane also asked no permissions and just did it on her own. And although Steph Brown was given permission, she was given permission by Barbara Gordon, not by Batman. And I like that. The, the girls in, in, in the Batsuits have always been their own people. I mean, the same goes for Batwoman, but she's not relevant here. Now, why am I telling you about these two Batgirls? Well, I'm telling you about these two Batgirls because they're getting their own book. It's going to be called Batgirls. It's out in December, and I am so excited I cannot tell you. It's, it's going to be... An all-ages book, which means it's not going to be grim and gritty and, and all of that dark stuff, which I'm fine with. We've got enough of that. It's written by uh, Becky Cloonan and um, Michael Conrad, who worked together before on Wonder Woman, uh, with art from George Corona, whose work I really love. Uh, you probably know him best from the series We Are Robin, which means you possibly don't know him very well at all. Um, now, it's been described by DC as it sings with the energy of the Linda Lindas rocking out to Claudia Kishi. Now, if you're an old person like me, you may not know who the Linda Lindas are or what rocking out to Claudia Kishi means, and I'm not going to explain it here. It would take too long. Links in the show notes if you're interested, and please do follow the links in the show notes. The Linda Lindas are utterly, utterly brilliant. Uh, They went viral uh, earlier this year with a song called Stupid Racist Boy. Um, which made me smile a lot. They're a great, great group. So yeah, there's going to be more Batgirls. I am so, so pleased. Becky Cloonan uh, is a perfect writer for this. I'm I'm very pleased she's on board. So yeah, really looking forward to it. I'm imagining they're going to be challenging the, the same kind of energy that Marvel does with things like Ms. Marvel. And I suspect they're going for the same audience. It's It's an audience that DC has not really catered for all that well recently so yeah good on dc clearly this is not going to be for everybody but you know 
it's nice to have a bit of female representation. And on that subject, just a quick word to people who only know comics characters from the movies and have never read the comics. You might want to watch yourselves online a little bit if you're going to talk as though you are an authority on a subject you actually don't know anything about. And yes, boys on Twitter who are mad about She-Hulk, I am looking directly at you, you bunch of casuals. Let me be clear. I do not like gatekeeping. Okay? You are a fan of the Hulk if you are a fan of the Hulk. If you've never read a Hulk comic, but you love the Hulk in the movies, you are a Hulk fan. I will allow you that. I celebrate your joy at the character. I do. I really, really do. But if you're going to look at publicity for the forthcoming She-Hulk show and react by saying, uh, why has everything got to be girls? Stan Lee created the Hulk to be a boy. Why has he all got to be girls? Why can't they be men? If you're going to react like that, I'm going to laugh at you. You're perfectly within your rights to say, I have no interest in a female Hulk. That's fine. No problem with that. You do you. But don't react like that when you don't know what you're talking about. Because you know who created the She-Hulk? Stan Lee in 1980. Okay, co-created by Stan Lee and Sal Buscema. She-Hulk is Jennifer Walters. She is Bruce Banner's cousin. She's a lawyer. And in the comics, at least, I'm not quite sure if they're doing it the same way in the show, but in the comics, she begets sort of Hulk powers because she needs a blood transfusion and Bruce is the only person with the right kind of blood. And because Bruce's blood is contaminated, she becomes She-Hulk. The difference between She-Hulk and the traditional Hulk is that Shulky keeps her brains when she transforms. I think they've changed her in the comics now so that she gets a bit dumber and she kind of talks like Hulk used to talk now. But traditional Shulk, uh, which is what I've always called her, Shulky, um, is a lawyer and has brains all the time. And she's an awesome character and it just embarrasses me. I'm just embarrassed when fans of the genre react to, to things like that. If you don't think it's going to be for you, Fine, you know, maybe don't even give it a try if you're so anti it, but at least do a bit of research and make sure you know what you're talking about before you mouth off online. Okay? Okay, ticking off over. And finally in this section, because yes, I am aware I've been talking about comics for nearly half an hour now, and I know you're not all comics fans, so bear with us, there's more coming. But finally, just as a bit of a palate cleanser after me going all rage monster on you there, um, if you've watched the Hawkeye trailer, you will have seen that one of the things in it is them going past a theatre which is showing Steve Rogers the musical, which I thought was a brilliant idea. And I actually tweeted to Marvel Studios to say, please make this happen. Well, it turns out that was redundant because somebody already did. Um, links in the show notes to the Captain America musical that very nearly happened. OK, it, it just makes me smile. It makes me happy that this madness almost took place. And uh, all the more reason, Marvel, if you're listening, I know you're not, but if you are, please do me a Steve Rogers musical. It would be fabulous. Okay, nearly half an hour in. It's probably time we had a jingle. Only one space story this week. I mean, there are many, but there's only one I'm going to report on. And that is Elon Musk takes another stride out in front in the Battle of the Billionaires as his company, SpaceX, puts three civilians into orbit. And not just orbit. 
SpaceX have put three civilians in an orbit higher than the International Space Station. Now that means these three people are further away from Earth than anyone has ever been since 1972. Okay? Nobody's been further away from Earth than this since Apollo went to the moon. Which means, unlike Branson and Bezos, these three people are definitely astronauts. They are in orbit. As I record this, they are in orbit right now. So what's going on and does it matter? Well, what's going on is a little bit complicated. The short answer to does it matter is yes, it really does. So what have we got? Well, this is a mission called Inspiration4. Um, it's a Crew Dragon spacecraft, which is usually used to take people to the International Space Station. Space Station. It was launched aboard a Falcon 9 rocket, and um, it's blazing a trail, I think. Um, the mission commander, uh, a, a guy called Jared Isaacman, um, basically he's a very rich man. He purchased this mission. He's paying for it. Um, he said that he he wanted to do something to, to have space flight that didn't involve professional astronauts, but that carried private citizens into space. Um, there were two other seats. He said that one would go to a frontline worker. Uh, that is a woman called um, Haley Arsino. I think is how you pronounce her last name. I've never heard it said out loud. Um, she's a cancer survivor. Uh, uh, she's also a physician's assistant. Um, working for the organization that saved her life, which is pretty cool. She's also the youngest American to fly in space um, and the first to do so with a prosthesis. She's got a metal rod in her leg uh, following her cancer surgery. Uh, so that's all very cool, actually. Um, I'm very, very pleased for her. Um, and he also said um, that um, the second seat uh, would was part of an auction that raised $13 million uh, for the St. Jude Hospital. Um, it was part of the Super Bowl ad, if you follow American football. And the winner of the seat would be drawn from a pool of donors. That lucky winner uh, is somebody called uh, Chris Sembroski. Uh, he didn't technically win. A friend of his did, and they gave the seat to him. Um, so there's also um, somebody called um, Sean Proctor, uh, a geoscientist and professor at Southern Mountain Community College in Phoenix who's been selected uh, also to fly. So why does all this matter? Okay, so there are some civilians in space. Woohoo! They're not up there doing science. They are just going in circles around the planet. They're not really flying the craft. It's sort of a remote thing. I'll tell you why it matters. It matters because no one's ever done this before. And if space is going to become a thing that we do properly, then it can't remain the domain of governments and militaries forever, okay? If you want to fly with NASA, you don't have to be from the military, but it helps because if you want to fly with NASA until very recently, they've wanted people who were pilots um, and they wanted that military discipline and stuff. I mean, the first British astronaut was Major Tim Peake of the Army Air Corps, okay? You know, it, and that, you know, we, we wouldn't do, we don't do that with aviation. We have a military aviation. Of course we do. But if you want to go from London to New York, you do not get aboard an RAF plane. Well, unless you're in the RAF. You, know, you get aboard a, a Boeing or a, an Airbus 
that was built by a civilian company to, you know, with a, a civilian airline, it's private business. Uh, and space, if space is going to develop to be something that we use, space is going to have to be that too. So this is a huge step towards that. Now, it's not 100% a brilliant thing. Jeff Bezos um, is very keen on this vision of space as well. Um, and his vision of space seems to be, let's put all the industry off planet. And we've seen a model of how that looks. It's called The Expanse. You can watch it on Jeff Bezos' Amazon channel. And the reason you can watch it on Jeff Bezos' Amazon channel is because he's a big fan of the show. It was originally on Netflix and Netflix cancelled it. And Bezos said, well, I want to see season two. And so he bought it and put it on Amazon Prime. Now, that suggests to me that The Expanse is kind of the model of space that Bezos wants to move to. And if that's the case, we should all be very worried because life in The Expanse is horrible. If you've seen the show, okay, it ain't, space ain't a great place to live in The Expanse. So I'm glad we're taking baby set, steps and I think we should be careful what we wish for. But genuinely, they've raised a bunch of money for... Uh, a very good cause. Okay, they spent a bunch of money as well, and they could just have given all the money to the hospital. But hey, um, this is a thing I think I like as a very tentative first step. I hate that the people who are making this possible are the people who are making this possible, but you can't have everything. So I will leave you to digest that and we'll move on. Okay, now we are going to move on and we're going to move into a segment where, as has often been the case when I've used this jingle, the jingle is going to lie to you slightly because it's time for what I'm going to call Science. And to be fair to me, the first item in this segment is science. And I'm sorry, but I think it's terrifying. Okay. Scientists at Cornell University have come up with a new material. So far, so good. Material scientists do that kind of thing all the time. However, this new material is described as lifelike. It has a metabolism and it can self-reproduce. Now. They are saying at Cornell University that the goal of this research is not to create life, but to create lifelike machines. Okay. The article also says that the researchers were able to program metabolism into the material's DNA. And I don't think they're using the term DNA figuratively here. And... Do you want the matrix? Because this is how you get the matrix, people. Now, I am all for robotics. I'm all for lifelike machines. I'm a very big fan of a company called Festo, which produces extraordinarily lifelike machines based on actual creatures to see if, you know, thousands of years of evolution can solve engineering problems that, you know, we would spend ages trying to figure out when nature's already done it for us. That I like. This makes me nervous. Now, I'm going to be honest. 
I am not a good enough scientist to explain this to you. We're way outside my area of expertise, if I can even be said to have one in science. Um, I am going to put a link in the show notes to the article that I have. It's actually an audio article. I, I have listened to this three times now. I still don't completely understand what they're telling me. I just know that it makes me really nervous. So, yes, mad scientists apparently still exist. Okay, now there are two more items in this segment, and I'm afraid they're both really engineering rather than science, but I don't have a jingle for engineering, so... Engineering! Yeah, it doesn't really work, does it? Anyway, as many of you may know, I am a massive aviation geek. I love planes. Absolutely love them. And I am a very big fan of the Red Arrows. They're not always my favourite aerobatic team. I mean, you know, they make me all patriotic and whatnot, but... I think in, in terms of sheer entertainment, I think the Italian Frecchi Tricolore are probably more fun. But, you know, you can't question the brilliance of the Red Arrows. What you can question is the brilliance of the plane they fly. The RAF Red Arrows display team has been flying the Hawker, well, I suppose the BAE system. It was the Hawker Sidley when they started. The BAE system's Hawk T1 training jet for decades now i think they uh, they replaced the Folland nat with the hawk 70s i think if i recall correctly it might have been the early 80s but i think it was about 78 and you know these airframes are knocking on a bit now i mean they're not all been around since then but as a type as a design the hawk is knocking on a bit and more to the point it is about to be retired from raf service uh which is going to be interesting the raf has about 80 hawks uh, Hawk T1s, that is. It's, I think it's got 28 Hawk T2s, which will be the only fast jet trainers left in the RAF until a replacement is found. And there's not going to be one of those until quite a bit after the Hawk is retired. So short of flapping their arms and running faster down the runway, what exactly are the Red Arrows going to do? Well, I have a little bit of scepticism about this report. Links to the article uh, that I, I'm drawing from uh, in the show notes. But it is reported, I'm going to go that far, that a decision has been made that a British firm based in Suffolk called uh, Aerialis is going to build a replacement for the Red Arrows Hawk T1 trainers. As reported... The plan is that this company is going to build 12 new airframes, nine for the Red Arrows to fly and three operational spares, which is handy because um, the RAF actually has 10 Hawks because they always carry a spare. That's what Red 10's for. Um, now, it's an interesting design of plane. It's designed to be versatile. Um, it's described as modular. So you've got your basic central core, but you can put, yeah, I mean, not this is not doable in the field. I think the idea is you, you order the version that you want. Um, but it can have different engines. It can have different wings, depending on the role you want it to play. Uh, now, obviously, the, the, the version for the Red Arrows is going to be the two-seat trainer version um, because it's replacing the Hawk. And... The arrows do like to have a back seat. They don't have anybody in the back seat when they're flying a display, 
but that's how they get their engineers to the airfield. So it's it's been decided that um, UK capability is preserved and um, Aerialis appears to be the only prospect of a, a British designed and built aircraft to replace the Hawk. Uh, the RAF has said publicly it isn't making a decision yet, it doesn't need to. Um, but it has been reported that a decision has in fact been made and there will be an announcement before Christmas. Now, it was reported in the Express, so, you know, you take your money and you pay your choice. I, I, I wouldn't believe the Express if they told me it was raining even while I was getting wet. So, you know, not sure. But Aerialis is fairly gung-ho about it. I mean, I suppose it would be. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested. It's not the sexiest looking plane I've ever seen, but it's a trainer. It doesn't have to be sexy. And to be honest, the Hawk's not that sexy. Um, I preferred the following that to the Hawk, but I got used to the Hawk. So, you know, I guess we'll see. Watch this space. I'm making no predictions except that um, I bet we don't have an announcement before Christmas. I bet we don't. But uh, I'll keep an eye on it and I'll let you know. OK, now this next bit is entirely speculative. And look, if I'm honest, it's borderline science fiction. So, you know, don't be too excited about any of the things I'm about to say. I think they're really cool. I also think they're extremely unlikely to happen. Uh, but the Royal Navy has unveiled, let's call it a vision, of what a future British fleet could look like. Now, before I go any further, um, I've just been talking about the RAF. Now I'm talking about the Navy. Um, I want to make something really, really clear, really, really clear. OK, I love military machines. I love planes. I love boats. And honestly, the military has the coolest toys. If I want to see the science fiction vision I grew up wanting to see, OK, all of the, all of the vehicles are going to be military. And I know I, I understand. I don't like war. I'm not a big fan of conflict. And I do understand that the purpose of military machines is largely to kill people. And whilst, you know, being a grown up and recognising that stuff has to be fought and occasionally we you know we need to do stuff like that. Not a fan of it. Really not a fan of it. I would rather we just kept the military toys as toys to play with rather than machines to use in anger. Um, and on that naive and probably slightly hypocritical basis, I really love war machines. They're just the coolest. And they're only going to get cooler if anything that's in the, this recent Royal Navy announcement actually happens. Um, this is all very, very blue sky thinking. OK, it's um, a response to a challenge uh, by the UK Naval Engineering Science and Technology uh, Forum. Uh, or UK Nest or UCNEST. Basically, to, to ask young engineers from industry and from academia to propose stuff that the Navy might be able to use. So a lot of the technology involved in building the things that the Navy might be able to use is entirely speculative, which is to say it doesn't exist yet and these things aren't possible. But 
they're really interesting ideas. Um, not least because the first one I'm going to talk about will annoy the RAF, which is always fun. A bit of, a bit of inter-service rivalry is um, amusing if you're sitting on the outside of it. So the first thing is to have um, a stratospheric base station. That's a base station, not space station. High in the stratosphere. Basically, a giant, and it would have to be giant, helium balloon, which carries aboard drone sort of fighter jetty things, which it would just drop. And then wings would extend when they got into air thick enough to operate, you know, to, to, for the wings to actually make a difference. Um, and that these drones would be able to strike enemy vessels and presumably any enemy land targets, although it's the Navy, so they don't talk about that. Um, the, the suggestion is that the helium balloon uh, could be covered in materials that would generate solar energy, so it could power itself. And the thing about this is that for a given value of helium leakage, such a thing would be able to stay airborne literally indefinitely if it was self-powered. And it would be very easy to move it to different positions around the globe. And it's a really clever idea. I mean, it's evil genius, but it is genius. Um, it will annoy the RAF because the RAF likes to think it has control of all things that fly. I mean, the RAF is not massively keen on aircraft carriers. Uh, and. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting proposal, and the artist's rendition of the drones that would be carried by this thing are, they look cool as whole heck. They really do. Um, so, yeah, I can't approve of such a warmongery, destructy thing, but at the same time, what a brilliant idea. Um, I might incorporate, incorporate it into some sci-fi that I'm writing. Might do that. That'd be fun. Um, so there's that. Uh, the idea that these fast strike drone thingamajigs would drop in free fall, uh, the winds would expand and then they would then glide, maybe even dive under the waves before attacking a target using projectiles uh, uh, launched from rail guns that would skim, skim over the water. Um, it's not utterly crazy. I mean, the Chinese and the Americans are using stratospheric balloons for surveillance. So... You know, it's it's basically only a matter of time before somebody weaponizes one. I, I'd like to think we didn't do it first. I'm I'm not sure how realistic dropping um, an autonomous vehicle or even a remotely controlled vehicle from that kind of height and having it then like drop from the atmosphere and into the sea and then out of the sea and then attacking things with rail guns. Not sure that technology exists, but you'd be damn sure that somebody's working on it. Um, now, they've also come up with a, a sort of semi-submersible stealth vessel that runs partly on wind power um, and is capable of housing autonomous submarines. So again, they, they do seem to be working towards the future of the Navy being drones. Uh, and, you know, I, I get the you know, it, I get the, the impulse for that. If you're the guy who has to order people to go and do things that could get them killed, not having to order them to do that 
but ordering them to um, send the robots in, I see the attraction. I am going to say that um, anyone thinking along those lines should read the 1970s, 2000 AD comic strip, well, 1980s, 2000 AD comic strip called the ABC Warriors, which projects a future war fought by robots. It's not pretty. Um, and when you take humans off the battlefield, it creates issues that you might not think. We've talked before about unexpected consequences. And I think only having robots on the battlefield might well make the people with the robots a lot more reckless. And given that the robots are likely to be fighting people because that's the nature of asymmetric warfare, um, it's a bother. It make, it, genuinely, this stuff makes me nervous. Um, there's also the bizarrest looking submarine concept I've ever seen, um, which, again, someone's got to use it in science fiction if they haven't already. It's not entirely stream streamlined. It's described as minimally manned. So not a drone, but doesn't carry many people. Most things would be autonomous. Um, but the outer skin of this thing would be made of brain coral, which is a type of coral. Um, it is suggested that such a thing would be designed to be capable of launching a large autonomous vessel that could itself deploy a sort of hex block, uh, dodecahedron style drones that would be able to combine together to create larger structures, maybe to encase enemy drones, or maybe they could be weaponized. Um, this is far out stuff, man. This is far, far, far out. Um, but again, it's fun. Links in the show notes to all of this stuff, by the way. There's also a very, very cool looking sort of stealth trimaran. Um, and the, the, the thought process does seem to be that the Navy will be moving towards using relatively cheap and, and unmanned uncrewed, you should say Royal Navy, actually, relatively cheap, uncrewed, and therefore, at least to some degree, expendable launch platforms will become more and more central to naval operations. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons for, for doing that. Um, the Navy does seem to be um, really diving, no pun intended, really diving in to these concepts. So, you know, again, watch this space. I Again, it's not that I don't have issues with robots that are designed to kill people. I do. I really do have issues. But at the same time, I'd rather have robots killing robots than people killing people, if that's how warfare is going to go. Since this is engineering and not really science, and since this is in danger of becoming yet another boring preachy part, we're going to leave that there. Links in the show notes for all of the stuff. And that is very nearly that. I've wibbled on about all that stuff so long, I've barely got time for comics, uh, in terms of recommendations at least. Uh, but let's very quickly do at least one, shall we? And this week's Comics of the Week. We're only going to do one, we've only got time to do one. But it's Harley Quinn, The Big Bang Kill Tour. And it's because I was surprised how much I liked it. Really was. For start, it's not regular DC continuity. It's based 
in the world of the Harley Quinn TV show, which I have never seen. And it does, in fact, follow directly on, as I understand it, from the events of the final episode. Don't worry if you haven't seen the show. I haven't either. And the explanation at the beginning was perfectly fine. Um, Harley is one of the characters who's perfectly capable of breaking the fourth wall and just saying, look, this is what's going on, but you should have watched the show, which, in fact, she does. Um, no, I liked it because, first of all, it focuses really strongly on the romantic relationship between Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, which is a relationship I've always really liked. I think they make a really cute couple. I really do. Um, now, I should say that... Although this book is cartoony in nature, it is based on an R-rated, that is to say, adult cartoon. The language is very definitely sweary, and although the sexual content isn't graphic, it is explicit that sex is taking place, if that makes sense. So you don't see nothing, but it's very obvious what's going on. There's, no, there's nothing coy about this. I mean, bear in mind, this is based on the cartoon that um, created the issue with um, Batman's eating habits that I was coy about a few shows ago. I'll stick a link in the show notes to um, being coy about Batman, uh, whichever episode number that was, uh, if you can't remember or didn't listen. But no, I, I like the way this relationship is shown between Harley and Ivy because it's not just straightforward. Ivy's going through some stuff, and although... She clearly is passionate about Harley. She's got other emotional stuff going on and she's not entirely together. And I, I like that ambiguity. I, I like that they're not just going, it's all hearts and flowers and romance and love because relationships aren't like that, particularly relationships between people like Harley Quinn and um, Pamela Risley. So I, I loved that aspect of it. I also really loved Furious Jim Gordon. From the very first page to the very last page, Jim Gordon is apoplectic with rage. And he's so funny when he's mad. I love the way he's been written in this book. He doesn't bear much of a relationship to the Jim Gordon I know and love from the regular Batman series. He doesn't have to. This is a different universe. It's really not important. He was just, just fun. And that's what this book is. It's stupid. It's fun. It is, however, a little bit thought-provoking, which I like in my comedy, and I really, really recommend it. As I record this, I think at Destination Venus, I've only got one copy left that isn't spoken for. So, you know, you might want to get down quickly. But as I will often tell you, this isn't an advert for Desties, and other comic shops are available. I'm sure if you can't get it from me, you'll be able to get it from somewhere else. And I'll tell you what, it's also made me really interested in making an effort to see the TV show, which I have not seen. So, um, you know, one of the streaming services might well have picked themselves up an extra subscriber with this. But now, what's that sound? Yes, it is, I regret. Dear listener, time's winged chariot drawing ever nearer. And yes, that was a metaphysical poetry reference. I'm still an English teacher. A um, couple of things before we go. First of all, massive, massive thank you to all the, the customers at Destination Venus who have donated comics and graphic novels to the Thought Bubble Comics Drive so far. I was expecting I'd maybe fill a long box. Currently, I've got three, actually, no, I think about it, three and a half 
long boxes back at the shop. And my car, which is not small, currently has the back seats down and is full. And I mean full. There is no more room in there of comics boxes. So generous have customers at Destination Venus been. I got I got two boxes full of graphic novels donated by a customer who doesn't even live in Harrogate yesterday. So yeah, you guys, seriously, you're amazing. If anyone else has any comics they want to donate to the Thoughtball Comic Drive so that we can put them in the hands of people in schools and libraries and youth groups, just drop them in. If you are bringing a load, let me know first. I'd appreciate it so I, I can make sure I've got somewhere to put them. But keep them coming. This is great. Thank you so, so much. Um, if you can't get into Harrogate, drop-off points are also available anywhere you have a Travelling Man comic store. All of the Travelling Man comic book sh shops are taking part in this. So you can go there either. And that just leaves the Geek Community Corkboard which does this week have a couple of things on it. Uh, a big apology, incidentally, to the Geek Bar, who sent me some of their regular things that they do of an evening, uh, and I've gone and lost the bit of paper I wrote it down on, and so really sorry, guys. If you want to know what's going on at the Geek Bar this week, just check out their own social media. I can tell you that uh, a customer has alerted me to the LGBT meet at Geek Retreat, which is on Tuesdays, so you've missed this week's, but you can get to next week's, from 5pm until Geek Retreat closes, which, as I understand it, is between 9 and 10pm. So uh, if that is of interest, you might want to get down there and uh, meet a few folk. And also, we've had Free Comic Book Day. Uh, I'm not, there's nothing as big as that on the horizon to, at Destination Venus anytime soon, but it is on Saturday, if you're listening to this on the day of release, uh, on Saturday, the 18th, I think it would be, of September, um, it is Batman Day. And I will have a very select and small amount of Batman goodies to give out to people who buy Batman-related things. Uh, so, uh, yeah, if you're passing, drop in, see if you can snag a freebie. Uh, I might be giving a few freebies out to people who aren't buying things too, so, you know. No purchase necessary and all of that. So thank you, everybody, who uh, has alerted me to geeky events going on in and around Harrogate this week. Uh, if you have a geeky event coming up that you would like me to plug, uh, it's not a paid service. We do not advertise businesses. We advertise events. All you have to do is chuck an email to me at info at destinationvenus.co.uk and I will tell everyone listening what you're doing. Also, that same address, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. If you have any suggestions, any comments, anything you want to say about the show at all, let me know. If you like the show, tell people about it. It's available as a podcast. You don't have to be in the Harrogate area to hear it. Links to the podcast version, again, in the show notes over at www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Information on all of the stuff I've talked about in this rambly little episode, uh, it can be found there as well. But that is it for now. Thank you for your kind attention. We will be back next week uh, when I will have fixed the issues with the conversation uh, with with Alice. Uh, and we'll have more of that. Uh, more of other stuff too. We may have another contributor on the show next week as well. I know I keep promising you that, but I'm genuinely working on it. Uh, so we'll see you then. Until we do, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Stay safe and stay geeky. Until the next time. 
we go geeking. Bye.